Hello and welcome to Emergency on Planet Earth with me, Mary Cray. Grey squirrels, Himalayan balsam, signal crayfish and killer shrimp. What do they all have in common? They are all invasive non-native species. Foreign plants or animals that have been transported by plane or boat to the UK and established themselves here. They are classed as invasive because they have a significant negative impact on our native biodiversity, either because they prey on our native animals, they compete for food, or they pass on their new diseases. Most people don't know how to spot these plants and animals, but Himalayan balsam can erode riverbanks and Japanese knotweed weakens the structural integrity of buildings. Their damaging effects are estimated to cost the UK 1.8 billion pounds a year, and the UN has identified them as one of the top five threats to the global natural environment. I sat down with three leading scientists in the field of invasive and non-native species to find out what are they, what are the risks they pose, and what action we and the government should take to minimise the threat. And what even is a Japanese stingwinkle? So we've just had our first panel on non-native invasive species and I'm here with three very eminent scientists. Professor Helen Roy from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, Professor Elizabeth Cottier-Cook, marine biologist at the University of the Highlands and Islands and the Scottish Association for Marine Science, and Dr Alison Dunn, reader in evolutionary ecology at the University of Leeds, just near me in Wakefield. So welcome to you all. Just have to get Wakefield in. Helen, if I can start with you, can you just set out how big a problem are non-native invasive species? I think it's really important to begin with some definitions and non-native species are species that have been moved from one part of the world to another part of the world by humans and it's that human element that's really important. And then when we're talking about invasive non-native species, that's the proportion, about 15% of those non-native species cause some kind of problem either to biodiversity, to ecosystems, to our economies or to society. So when we look, for example, within Britain, and we have what's called the GB Non-Native Species Information Portal, not very catchy, but it's a fantastic database with lots and lots of information about all of the non-native species in Britain. We have about 2,000 established non-native species in Britain. So that means that they're reproducing in Britain. When we whittle that down, only about 10 to 15% cause any kind of problem. So a couple of hundred. Yes, and if we look at, for example, within the plants, it's about 6-7% of the plants, whereas with the animals, it's about 36% of the animals. So when we think about what kind of problems are they causing, it can be really diverse. So for example, we can think about something such as the grey squirrel, which brought in disease and has been causing lots of problems for the red squirrels, for instance. And there are plants, for instance, that grow along our waterways that are causing erosion to the, to the waterways or maybe changing sedimentation patterns. So some of the species will cause species-to-species -species problems, 
Others will cause whole kind of ecosystem type problems. So we've had this big UN report which says that non-native species are the fifth biggest driver of biodiversity loss. And obviously things like land use, climate change are, are, are the other big drivers. So it's fifth in importance, but you, we can't really attribute how much is being driven by these non-native species because there's this complex interplay between them and the other factors, isn't there? Well, that's right. I think that global assessment from ITBES is really inspiring. It's consolidation of lots and lots of information to give these big global patterns and trends. And what we can see is these different things that are causing biodiversity loss, for instance, or degradation of ecosystems, they're all interacting with one another. So, for example, the way in which climate change interacts with invasions it's really quite complicated. And then if we throw in land use as well, all of these big drives of change are working alongside one another. So it comes out that invasive alien species are the fifth, but also it's context specific. So for example, we would go to one of our UK overseas territories, to one of the islands such as St Helena, we would see that possibly it's the biggest threat to biodiversity and ecosystems. And we've done some really big work in those overseas territories, haven't we? Particularly, we're trying to get rid of the cats, rats and mice. That's right. And bringing back the birds. You've been involved in one of those projects. So I've been involved in making some predictions about what might be the next troublesome species that could arrive. And that's so that pathway management, so the way in which they arrive, can be managed and biosecurity can be enhanced to try and prevent their arrival in the first place. But it's been a really most unique and amazing project. And Liz, who's here as well, has been part of that. We've taken experts with marine, terrestrial and freshwater expertise and worked alongside people within these regions to come up with these priority lists. And it's been just incredible to meet these amazing experts all the way around the world. And through sharing that information, sharing our knowledge, we've been able to produce these lists from which we can then prioritise some kind of action. And wherever we've been, you can see the effects of the invasive alien species. So for example, on Grand Cayman, they have um, green iguanas that would have been taken over as pets, but then have found their way out into the wider countryside across Grand Cayman. They now have one million green iguanas on Grand Cayman. Every year, in a good year, they can double their population size. Ooh. In a bad year, they increase by 60%. So just... What these, are these chaps eating when they're, when they're doubling in size? Well, they'll be omnivores. They'll be eating all kinds of things. But the kind of problems that they then cause are they cause problems to the infrastructure. They can take out electricity. They're a nuisance within people's gardens. Somebody was telling me they have to every week get someone in to clear the green iguanas from their gardens. And these are really big animals. So I think you know, when we visit some of these islands, you begin to really see firsthand what kind of problems these species can cause. We see it here within the UK as well at various different scales. So we can see, for example, a little plant called Piri Piri Burr on Minsmere and RSPB Reserve, where it causes problems getting tangled up with the birds, with the nesting ground, nesting birds. So at local scales as well, we can see some of these problems playing out within the UK too. Fantastic. Liz, you talked to the committee about some of these weird and wonderful uh, animals and creatures that live in the in, in our oceans and I mean we, we were having a laugh earlier about the uh, Japanese stingwinkle which sounds like something in a kind of nonsense poem but you also talked to us about the Asian clubbed tunicate tell us about 
them. Yes. Well, the Asian, well, we're actually, I'm not going to say blessed, plagued by a couple of tunicate species, or maybe people will know them as sea squirts. When you squeeze them, they squirt water out That's at exciting. you. Exciting. Um, <laughs> but the, yeah, there are a couple in the UK waters anyway that are causing us real problems. And one's the Asian club tunicate, as you said, and the other one is something called the carpet sea squirt, Didendum vexillum. They have wonderful names, don't they? And the clubbed tunicate, it does look like a miniature sort of rounder's bat and it can grow up to about sort of 15, 20 centimetres in length. And that is causing problems and has caused problems around the world to do with aquaculture. So anything hanging in the water, any mussel lines or fish farm cages or anything like that are all prone to colonisation or to it. So they just hang on They just hang on, they stick on and they hang on. But they're just massive bags of water. So you can imagine the extra weight. weight that this is adding, and of course adding extra costs to our our, um, our farmers, our mussel farmers, and mussel growers, and, and finfish farmers. So there's that one, but then there's also one that is particularly high on my priority list is this carpet sea squirt that will just smother whatever is growing on the seabed or hanging off off lines. And um, there is one particular very special area to me in Scotland that is... Where um, is it? It's on the west coast of Scotland and it has, it's a small sea lock and it is basically got a designated, it's like globally protected, you know, it's got a, this special area of conservation because it has these beautiful, they look like coral reefs, but they're not, they're made of these fan worms and they've got bright red tentacles and they're just beautiful to see. But it's the only place in the world where you find them. There is no other example of these beautiful fan worms anywhere else. And this particular horrible carpet squirt. squirt turned up two years ago. And really, we, we just, we really, you know, if it did attack, we don't know for sure whether it's there yet. There's been monitoring taking place. Um, but if it does grow on these reefs, I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't know the first way of trying to peel it off mm. without damaging the reefs because they're very delicate. They have very delicate tubes. So this is one of our things with our seas being oh, under pressure as never before. You yeah. also t- um, talked to us about the jellyfish oh, yeah. um, in the Black Sea eating all the anchovies. Yes. That sounded yes. pretty grim. Yeah, yeah. There's, there was an introduced um, comb jellyfish um, introduced, I believe, with ballast water. So in this is in the ballast of the ships? In the ballast of the ships, yeah, which is the, the water gets exchanged as the ships load up their cargo and, and ballast water gets removed and then it gets taken up in the next port. Mm. Anyway, the ballast water, um, they think the discharged ballast water brought in this um, comb jellyfish, it reproduced. The Black Sea is a very enclosed, it's got a very narrow entrance, very enclosed sea, just went berserk and this comb jelly preyed upon the juvenile stages of the anchovies and the entire fishery collapsed. So ecological um, disaster. Hundreds then. of millions of pounds was lost because of this. So it's very much held up in you know in the textbooks as being a prime example of what what a marine invasive species can actually do. And they've also shot down a power station in Israel. What a happened diff- there? Different jellyfish, different bigger, one? Okay. bigger one about the size of a dinner plate. Yeah. But um, yes, it's at certain times of year, it can form, and it's called the nomad jellyfish, it can form swarms of 30 kilometres in length. And it will be like swimming in a soup, swimming in a jellyfish soup. And you can imagine this power station, the swarm got blown in, 
in the cooling water pipe just went in blocked the whole thing and i think the power station was shut for a couple of weeks and they had diggers in these you know the big diggers i think it was like something like a ton of jellyfish they were removing an hour for two weeks so absolutely Often huge costs unbelievable yeah unbelievable you're also horizon scanning um in our overseas territories and one of the species that you're concerned about is the lionfish this yes. is a this is yes. a hungry yes a hungry bad oh, fish oh not good yes not good no this came up particularly in our overseas territories in the sort of caribbean but also on the sovereign base in cyprus as well because it's it's coming through the red sea mm. into the eastern mediterranean right. But in the Caribbean, we believe it was introduced um, via the aquarium trade. I think possibly into Florida, and then and then of course they grow so quickly that before you know it, you've got this this fish with venomous spines all over it. You know, being eating all the other fish in your fish tank, and then and then someone's obviously thought, well, I'll just get rid of it and dump it in the sea. But they are causing real problems because they feed on pretty much anything juvenile fish species shellfish all sorts and of course because they have such long venomous spines i mean we're talking sort of eight inches long they're beautiful to look at but um very hard yeah very hard to get rid of and people at the moment are literally spear fishing them and what about the seaweed industry in the philippines what's happening to their seaweed then yeah well we um i run a run a program called global seaweed star and it's funded by the uk government the research in in department. We're seeing that particularly in the aquaculture industry, disease pathogens are absolutely, they are sort of creating these bottlenecks. We're working at the moment with the top four seaweed producers in the world and seaweed is second only in production volume to finfish. It's huge. It's just that we don't grow it here in the UK. You know, seaweed is in our toothpaste, in our cosmetics, cosmetics, face creams, but it's it's everywhere. And of course, we're eating it. The celebrity chefs are promoting it, aren't they? But in the Philippines, disease in this industry is costing around 100 million US dollars every year. And it's really creating a huge problem. And for these very poor countries for that the rely. Very poor yeah, countries. Yeah. For hard currency. Yeah, Alison, we've heard about the global problem. You're working very close to home, Leeds, just a, a few miles north of Wakefield, and you're working with Yorkshire Water, combating their zebra mussel problem. I'm not sure I'd know a zebra mussel if it came up and bit me, but anyway. And in the Yorkshire Dales as well. So what what, what are you doing with Yorkshire Water? So I work with, I sit on the Yorkshire Dales Biosecurity and Invasive Non-Native Species Steering Group and that's made up of stakeholders from up in the Yorkshire Dales, government, non-government organisations, businesses including Yorkshire Water and Recreation. And I also represent the Yorkshire Integrated Catchment Solutions Programme which is a NERC funded partnership. What's NERC? Natural Environment Research Council. So one of the big, so one of the big one councils. Of the, one of the research councils of the UK and it's funding projects that support the use of environmental science in managing water catchments and I lead an INS biosecurity project particularly working with local authorities, Leeds City Council, Barnsley Metropolitan Borough Council are our, our case studies and then we're expanding to nine other local authorities including Wakefield Council with our workshops. And so what will you do in those workshops if you, when you come to Wakefield and can I come? 
Yes, please, that would be wonderful. We'd love you to come. So we've run an initial workshop where we asked um, the local authorities, and we've run actually similar interviews with other stakeholders, about invasive species and about perhaps barriers to something that we would term biosecurity. So with invasive species, our Great Britain's non-native species strategy talks about how best we deal with them. And one of the first lines of defence is prevention. It's trying to stop invasive species arriving in the country. In the ballast water. In the ballast water, for example, fouling on hull. Transport and trade are huge pathways in which things are introduced. And also, really importantly, at a local level, preventing things from moving any further, because we're the primary thing that moves species around. Think that something like the killer shrimp is a tiny little amphipod freshwater shrimp. You couldn't eat it, it's too small. Might make prawn toast. Um, it broods its eggs, it's got a little brood pouch down its front and there can be a hundred eggs in there. So if I get one of those attached to my fishing gear or my canoe or something like that, I might accidentally move it around. Similarly, a lot of people are familiar with um, Japanese knotweed because it's a big problem for construction and if you've got it in your house it's difficult to get a mortgage because it interferes with your building and your brickwork and it grows up through tarmac. And actually just a tiny fragment of that plant you don't need a seed, just a tiny fragment of that plant can grow and form the basis of a new population. So, so we'll be just talking to these people about biosecurity and what they need to try and improve that in the region. And we do have some alien invaders in Yorkshire. We do. It's not just people like me from Coventry. <laughs> um, we've got the zebra mussels. Who, who are they and why are they are a problem? So zebra mussels are um, a species that came over from the Ponte Caspian. I'm not, uh, I'm what is the Caspian? The Caspian is an area across um, in, in across mainland Europe, the um, Black Sea area, and things have been moved around through shipping traffic. There's a lot of canals and river networks of shipping traffic moving there, and being an island, to some extent, we've been protected. And um, zebra mussels and killer shrimps have been in mainland Europe, progressing through for a long time, but they have now jumped into GB. Actually, zebra mussels have been around for a long time, but have only recently started to cause big problems. The killer shrimp... Are the, the, zebra, are the zebra mussels a big, a big freshwater mussel? Tiny little freshwater Oh, they're teeny, mussel. okay. They're just about half a centimetre long, maybe oh, a centimetre long. I've seen long. about a centimetre. Centimetre yeah. long. But they've got zebra stripes. Okay, they've got so stripes can... all over them. And the problem with these things is they encrust hard surfaces. And if we put them in our lab and drop a piece of water pipe in there, they'll rapidly encrust the inside of it. And so you can imagine it's narrowing the bore of that pipe. You can't get water down it. That's a huge problem to the flooding. company. Yeah. It can contribute to resilience of our water supplies. And you see that. That's the thing we see. But they have motile larvae. They release their gametes into the water. They fuse. So they have offspring. And those offspring or motile, they can get moved around in our water as well. So okay, so they when they so when they breed, they basically move around. How much is Yorkshire Water spending dealing on uh, zebra dealing with the zebra mussels problem? Then you said it was about one hundred and twenty thousand pounds a year, something like that. Uh, Currently in in Yorkshire, Yorkshire hmm. Water, um, they look after hundreds of supply reservoirs. And currently, zebra mussels are only found in a handful of these, and removing them from their pumping gear, their water pipes, and so on costs about £120,000 per annum. Mm. Um, the, the risk is it's really important that we don't allow these to spread any further because you can imagine if you multiply that by a hundredfold, 
that's a big risk to the resilience of our water supply. It's a big potential cost to the customers and to Yorkshire Water in controlling those zebra mussels. So we talked about some some of the work and research that you've all been involved in, and it's all kind of working, uh, you know, with European colleagues, working with um, colleagues in very far away countries in these overseas territories. What do you see are the risks from Brexit? A for trade as a, a way for it to come in, and B. Um, in terms of your research that's in some cases been going on for 20 years? So I think within the scientific community we will always find a way to work together. I think the collaborations we have are inspiring and incredible and when we all come together it doesn't really matter where we're from, we just get on and do what we need to do and sharing that information is really important. So I think from the scientific community I think You'll find a way. We'll find a way, and um, you know when I look at some of the some of the big challenges that we're going to have to deal with, that that is the only way to do it. The only way we can do it is through cross border collaboration. We need to share information, share knowledge, and to be having this early warning system where we let other people know what's coming into our particular regions that could be of a threat to them. So, for example, it's really important that we have good information flow across to the Republic of Ireland of species that arrive in Great Britain. And we will find ways, and we do have this fantastic coordinating body, the GB Non-Native Species Secretariat, who will help us to find those ways. Conservation yeah. is all about decision-making, and yeah. people are so intertwined with making these decisions over what they, how they want the habitats to be and how they want them to be managed. But we also need to think about ecosystem function and resilience of those ecosystems. And when we make some of the changes that we make as a consequence of moving a species from one place to another place, we can upset that balance. And we heard about that this morning from Alison when she was talking about the water security, for instance, and how important it is in, in those dimensions as well. But I think that you know, when we think about some of the systems that we see that we really enjoy seeing as well, there can be aesthetic reasons why we want to keep a system the way it is. Mm. And when, for example, visiting St Helena and seeing some of the native mm. vegetation, it's just so beautiful. And it's supporting so many endemic species, species that aren't found anywhere mm. else around the world. 95% of the UK's biodiversity is in these overseas territories. Absolutely. And it's I think nature is fairly resilient and fairly robust, but the rate at which we're changing things as humans is unprecedented. And that is a huge challenge for biodiversity ecosystems, and, and that's what we've got to address. Mm. So let's just have a final quick fire round. Spanish slugs. I was going to say snog, marry, avoid, but I, I won't say that. I'll say, um, <laughs> I mean, I whenever clearly throwing them over your neighbour's hedge is not a, a, an effective way of doing it because these fellas can get back in lightning quick time, my neighbour tells me. <laughs> what are they doing to our slugs? They're bad, aren't they? So I think that slugs is an interesting one and I, I'm just going to give a name check to my PhD student Imogen who's working on slugs with the Royal Horticultural Society. I need to uh, give me Imogen's number. I will give you Imogen's number because she'll want to excite you about slugs and about how not all slugs are terrible slugs. Some slugs are going to eat your hostas and, and I'm sure that's quite a nuisance. Your strawberries. Yeah, your strawberries. But to be honest, I don't know, when my strawberries get eaten by a slug, I think, well, good on you, slugs. And, <laughs> you know, we, some of these things we have to, in terms of wildlife gardening, it's important that yeah. we allow these things to live within our yeah. gardens. Of course, yes, some of the non-native species can be more aggressive 
than our native species. And actually that's a trait that can make them, wherever we look at invasive species, that can be a trait that makes those invasive non-native species extremely successful. So yes, Spanish slugs, an unwanted visitor. Unwanted visitor. And what about the parakeets, which you see in lots of parks now, these bright green parakeets? Are they, they an unwanted invader or are they going to be okay? I mean, parakeets are, when we walk through Hyde Park, for instance, now, the soundscape that we hear is altogether different as a consequence of the fact that we have parakeets. And for sure, some people are going to love the parakeets and some people are going to find them an irritation. But actually, what's more of a concern is what will there be, their interaction be with other birds that are using the same sources as they're using within the trees? So, for example, competition over nest sites and things like that. But actually, you know, they, they are here to stay. It would be very difficult to eradicate the, the parakeets. So, you know, I think that when we look at some of our urban habitats... Same with the grey squirrel. Yeah, we're seeing many, many different new arrivals. And I think that really it's important that we prioritise and that also we prioritise around prevention of these, some of these most damaging species arriving in the first place. And we've heard a lot about biosecurity and the importance of biosecurity. And that will be echoed all around the world, that that is our big hope for preventing the arrival of the most damaging species in the first place. So prevention is better than cure. That is the very, that's very clear. also the case within the country. So you mentioned the grey squirrel, and there are indeed areas, say in London, where the grey squirrel is here to stay. But there is a good argument for trying to keep barriers around areas up in the north of England and in Scotland where the red squirrel is still present. And if we can keep the grey squirrel from encroaching on this, then it won't spread the pox virus, which is what is killing the red squirrels. So, so a cordon sanitaire from yes, the up, you know between good. Yorkshire and the Lake District is what is what we need to stop these poxy uh, grey squirrels. And I think that consideration of scale and consideration yes. of context is really important. We need to be thinking in a lot of detail around some of these different aspects. And you know when we think about some of the rodents that are causing problems on some of the UKOC's territories, yes. and there have been some successful eradication campaigns. We're not going to eradicate them in mainland Britain, for instance. And the, the motivation isn't so high anyway because we don't have these rare ground nesting birds and these amazing sea colonies. So we've really got to think on a case-by-case basis when we're making these sort of prioritisations. Finally, we've got crabs, haven't we? Uh, that are, We've got crabs in this country that are fine, yes. but when they go to America, yeah. they're not fine. Yeah, so, so we're, not, we're not just um, bringing in new species. We're also exporting our own to other countries where they go on to become um, huge problems and what's uh, wrong with the British crab in America oh, it's, oh well <laughs> well it's eating all sorts of other crabs out there and other bivalves and and generally causing havoc along the whole east coast of well, most a large proportion of the east coast of America so, but the interesting yeah. thing is of course and and this is just a, a common sort of green shore crab Carcinus maeus you know doesn't cause any problems really here sort of fits in with the local system but um uh, if, as far as I'm aware, when it got transported out to America, it lost some of its parasites, and one in particular was something that castrated the males. So out in the States, of course, there's, there's, no, castration. there's, not, there's no castration of these males going on, as far as I'm aware, and of course their populations have exploded. Whereas here, our sort of natural, you know, the natural parasites and, and pathogens that, that occur with, with the 
um, with the species, sort of keep it in check. So that's quite an interesting example of how it's known as the enemy enemy release hypothesis of where you know something ends up in another part of the world, but it doesn't have the enemies there to keep it in check. Yeah, so it's lost its it's lost its enemies yeah. en route. Oh, it's yeah, shrugged yeah, yeah. off and got a brand new yeah. life. Parasites and pathogens are just absolutely <laughs> fascinating wherever they are, but within the invasion process we're really interested in how they might be causing some of the effects that the, the species might arrive, the host might not have very many, cause many problems at all, but yeah. the parasites that it's carrying and hit, that could be the problem. It could be the problem. And Something called a novel weapon, like this pox virus is a novel weapon that the grey squirrel brought. And similarly, crayfish plague is brought by invasive crayfish. They don't seem to suffer from it. They, they, they carry it, but they don't die. As soon as it gets passed on to our endangered white-clawed crayfish, they die. So Actually, you're gonna have I, to... I met through our passion for parasites. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so we've got a bunch of women talking about parasites and castration of crabs. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you all very much indeed. The world of weird and wonderful invasive species is fascinating but overlooked. We know our native wildlife are under threat as never before from climate change and habitat destruction and invasive species are adding to the problems. That's why our Environmental Audit Committee report into invasive species is calling on government to do much more to tackle them. To set up a citizen's army like they have in New Zealand, where 2% of people are trained in identifying and tackling invasive non-native species. In the UK, that would mean over a million volunteers trained and ready to go to tackle these alien invaders before they get their feet on the ground. We'd also like to see the government establishing a dedicated border force to improve biosecurity and stop these species passing through our borders. And we want to see the government signed up to the Ballast Water Convention because many of these stowaways come in the holds of ships. We also want a rapid response fund so that agencies can tackle invasive species before they get established. Prevention is better than cure. You can find a link to our report and more information in the bio. That's all for now, but do share this and follow my channel for more episodes. Brexit permitting, I'm Mary Cray and you've been listening to Emergency on Planet Earth. Emergency on Planet Earth was presented by Mary Cray and produced by Sam Airy. The music was Cold Funk by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks to all our guests, the fantastic Professor Helen Roy, Professor Elizabeth Cotier-Cook and Dr Alison Dunn.